setting a precedent where essentially you are going to go ahead and prevent American people from using open source code is a very bad precedent. And honestly, if we do nothing about it, it essentially like opens the door for other regulatory agencies to essentially try to go after code itself rather than actually the activity of people around that code. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM. welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. Today, we're going to have a fun conversation, a first of its kind that I've had so far on the Unstoppable Podcast. We're going to talk about everything Web3 and NFT legal, and we're talking with a lawyer today. So I'm joined by Mark, the Chief Legal Officer at Polygon. So a fantastic person to dive into this subject with. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Josh. You're welcome. It's been a particularly interesting week around the law topic. So I think this is a timely conversation, but I think as like innovation and tech progresses, you go from this early point where people are just trying to like create, you know, everyone's just scrapping together code, putting together an NFT project. And then as things become maybe more I don't know, more official as the industry gets more adoption. Now you start entering all these questions of what kind of legal protection do you need to consider or take or implement? And like from a high level, that means the industry is progressing, right? Once once you start entering like those legal conversations. But how has this past year felt for you? I'm, I'm sure it's been a pretty crazy whirlwind as you're implementing a lot of things that are being discussed or thought about for the first time. I mean, I think the last year has been really one of the most interesting years because we got to a point where, I think you're exactly right, we got to a point where you've got the industry that is finally waking up to the fact that we're actually having tougher questions asked from a regulatory perspective. We basically also have a ton of laws that are being kind of considered not just in the U.S., but outside of the U.S. for the first time, right? We actually have politicians that are focused on this. And so we're getting to a point where we still have very, very little guidance from a legal perspective, but you can basically feel like it's coming, <laughs> right? And I think something we might talk about later being like the tornado cash sanctions, I think is probably one of the biggest things that has happened. But really, like in the last year, you've seen a few things, right? We've heard about Uniswap having received a voluntary disclosure request from the SEC. We've heard about Coinbase having to drop its Lend product because of the SEC, basically heard of a bunch of like legal issues that are arising purely from the fact that the regulators are, are really starting to step in a little bit more. But I'd still say that like one thing that we haven't seen as much is any kind of like real action against NFT or DeFi companies that you would have expected. And I think the answer to that is really they're working on it. And it's something that we're going to see coming in the next year rather than during the past year. Well, definitely might want to dive into that a little bit, too. I'd kind of be interested just to hear your takes on, you know, what you think might be coming down the road for NFT projects that aren't setting themselves up for like that long term success today. I think that definitely could start to differentiate the projects that are going to last versus the ones that that maybe won't. Because it seems like you can skirt around the legal side of things for a little bit, but maybe not forever. Before we dive into all that stuff, though, could you let the listeners know a little bit on how you got into crypto and how that led to you working for Polygon? One of my good friends, she just finished law school, and I was thinking about her prior to this call. Like, when you're going through law school and you're starting your career, and like, how do you jump into such a new field? Because I'm sure the things you were going through, you know, prior to some of your crypto experience was just so not related. So I'd, I'm curious to hear how you found your way into this emerging tech field? So by background, I started my career working in like mergers and acquisitions with big public companies and then slowly ended up moving, went to another firm, law firm, and then 
ended up working with early stage companies doing securities offerings and really like all of their their legal work. And I was sitting there one day with a partner at the firm and he was talking to me about what it is that you should do to have like a long legal career. And basically what he said is go do what you actually like doing. Like if you're in an area that you love, then you're going to end up lasting and you're going to do really well because of the relationships that you're going to build with people who think similarly and things like that. And that was right at a point where I'd spent probably like the last year digging into to Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that was late 2016. And I was super interested in it. And I said, you know what? This guy's got a point. Why don't I do that? And so beginning of 2017, started focusing on, on crypto by the second quarter of 2017, basically dropped all the other legal work I was doing to spend my entire time on crypto. And really for me, it was just, again, it was like, here's this new technology that is revolutionary in the sense of like, not only what it empowers people to do, but the part that actually is coolest to me is like what developers can do with the technology. I always love coming up with like a legal solution and saying, hey devs, can you do something about this? And the devs always find a way to do it. And so to me, that's like probably one of the most fascinating parts of being in the space is seeing what the devs can do. Your most recent article that you put out that we're going to definitely dive into the sufficient decentralization one, I noticed that there was a lot of, you know, laying out the foundation or the plan for how devs or even founders can start implementing this kind of stuff. So I definitely see that tying into some of your, your recent writing. And I also saw you say on Twitter that continuing to scale ETH feels like the most important work I can be doing right now. And that's what you said kind of in your a Twitter thread, I believe, when you were announcing that you're going over to Polygon, which is awesome. And Polygon's definitely a, a big partner of Unstoppable Domains. And I'm curious, like, why does that feel like a worthwhile and meaningful mission for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back down to, to me, there's really like two chains that I'm interested in. One of them is going to surprise people. The other one won't. The first one is Bitcoin. And the reason why Bitcoin actually interests me is because of the potential that it actually has for people in certain countries around the world, where I think having money that Bitcoin is or the store of value that Bitcoin is, is something that is actually really important. But then the second one is Ethereum. And Ethereum is like the, the love that brought me into this space because of everything that you can do with it that you can't do with Bitcoin. And when I go and I look at the rest of the space outside of Ethereum and Bitcoin, what I see is like a lot of other chains, some of which have a lot of potential, all of which are going to end up one day running into the same issue as Ethereum, which is it's going to get used a lot and they're going to get clogged and they're going to get expensive. When I think about that, what I'd actually prefer to do is spend my time on a chain that is going to be that is the leading chain, the one that's probably going to be around the longest, notwithstanding what others might believe. The one that I personally think is the most censorship resistant outside of Bitcoin, the one that has the biggest network effects, and frankly, the ones that have the most devs who are building on it. In doing that, then the question is, well, what else are you going to do like in the Ethereum ecosystem that is that is interesting? And for me, it's like, go work at the place where you are going to see some like real scaling happen. Right. And I think for me, that's why I got like super interested in Polygon is because I, I think that you're building like a real scaling solution, well, a set of scaling solutions at Polygon that is super interesting. And so for me to be able to like be part of this Polygon ecosystem and keep kind of building up the Ethereum ecosystem through it is super interesting. I like hearing that explanation. And honestly, I wasn't ready. I was going through my head. I was thinking about, okay, which chain is he going to say that's going to surprise me? And Bitcoin wasn't the first one that popped into my head. I was thinking of some other just altcoins and other blockchains. I like that perspective there. And very cool to hear how your beliefs in Ethereum and how that's drawn you to to Polygon. I think what their Polygon's doing to help with the scaling is, is so important. It's getting so much more recognition, maybe even in just the last couple months. I think Polygon's been a standout project and blockchain to me during this, this bear cycle as we've seen partnerships ramp up and a lot of major projects starting to say, hey, we're gonna be using Polygon for the work we're doing because of the scalability solutions, environmental impact is low and that's great to see. So you talked about the sanctions and censoring of blockchain activity. So I think we should just jump right on into Tornado Cash because that was a, a recent really big story. And I think that it almost sets a, an interesting precedent that I'd like to talk through with you. So 
And maybe we should even clarify for anyone who's not fully familiar with the Tornado Cash situation, but it's a decentralized application that people, it's a crypto mixer. So you can send crypto to Tornado Cash and it mixes it up and then it sends it to an address. So it doesn't look like it's coming from you. It's kind of like a way of sending crypto anonymously. I hope that's a good explanation there. But what do you think of this action that the government's taken on Tornado Cash and, and sanctioning its use and saying that we can't use that anymore because it's being used for illicit activity? I think I want to like back up for one second on Tornado Cash and just say the key thing for Tornado Cash, and you can see this across what the developers have done, like the Tornado Cash developers, in that their real focus was on privacy, right? Their focus was not on being able to help bad actors. I mean, they specifically did things to not help bad actors. They created compliance tools built into it. They even hired what's referred to as a blockchain analytics company that essentially tracks wallets that are connecting and blocks those that are tied to sanctions. So just setting the stage for that, basically what ended up happening is that the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is OFAC, that administration administers the sanctions regime in the US, which is essentially a regime that is intended to protect like U.S. national interests, something that is extremely important in the U.S. And basically what OFAC decided to do was that it put basically a set of tornado cash addresses on the sanctions list. Essentially, there's this list which refers to as a specially designated nationals list. It's a list that has tons of people's names on them. These are people that U.S. people are not allowed to deal with. They also have a ton of assets on there, including like ETH wallet addresses. And those ETH wallet addresses are actually tied to specific people on there. And they're basically saying, the US government is saying, you're not allowed to interact with this wallet address whatsoever. And so what they ended up doing with Tornado Cash is they put a bunch of wallet addresses on there. For example, they put a Gitcoin grants address on there. But then they also did something that they've never done before, which is they put a smart contract address, being the core smart contract address for Tornado Cash. Essentially what that ended up meaning is that no US person is allowed to interact with that smart contract. So if you have funds as a US person in that smart contract, you have no right to actually withdraw the funds from that smart contract. Now, the intended purpose of this is to basically say, we want to stop North Korea from being able to launder money through Tornado Cash. But the thing that OFAC did not do at all is think about the collateral impact of that. Right. And basically, one of the biggest collateral impacts is the fact that now U.S. people who have funds in there literally have no right to take their funds out of it. The problem with this, other than this collateral impact, is that basically what the U.S. government just did is it took a neutral technology, being Tornado Cash, which is just as neutral as the Internet and just as neutral as Ethereum. And it basically said, because this has been used roughly 30% of the time for nefarious activity, we are going to put it on the sanctions list. And that's basically where we stand right now. I didn't realize some of the specifics that you had listed out there. Is this the first time that they've sanctioned a smart contract address versus someone's personal Ethereum wallet address? Or have we even seen that smart contract getting like blacklisted before? Yeah, we've never seen a smart contract listed on there before. And honestly, no lawyer you would have spoken to would have ever thought that they would see a smart contract address listed on the SDN list. It was like a very, very surprising result. So I'd like to kind of break down here, you know, what, what does it mean as a precedent that's being set that this open source code is being criminalized, that the smart contract address is being criminalized? In a non-Web3 comparison, I'm almost thinking, is that the equivalent of saying you can't use Venmo because some people Venmo drug dealers or, you know, something like that? I mean, that's what it seems like in my head when I'm thinking about the explanation. I'd say it's even worse than that. I mean, I think your explanation is good in that it is essentially Venmo can be used for good or bad. But the difference with Venmo is that there are actually people behind Venmo who can actually decide whether they want to stop a transaction or not stop a transaction, whether they want Venmo to be used for good or whether they want Venmo to be used for bad. This is even worse with Tornado Cash because there is nobody to make those decisions. The core Tornado Cash smart contracts admin keys were burnt. There is nothing that anybody can do 
about those contracts whatsoever. So people are going to continue to launder money through Tornado Cash if they want to launder money through Tornado Cash, even if they're on the contracts on the SDN list. The burning of those private keys is important to note because I saw, and maybe it was by you, maybe it was by other people commenting on the situation, people can recreate, like this, this is open source code. So someone can spin up another smart contract that does the, essentially the exact same things as Tornado Cash, but Tornado Cash has been vetted, it's been used, it's something that the Web3 community knows that you can use Tornado Cash without potentially having your funds like stolen from you. And so if someone spins up a copy of Tornado Cash that hasn't proved that they've burned the private keys, you know, you could be now exposing yourself to something super risky. So it seems like A, it's getting rid of a, a tech that's been used and like trusted by the community. And, and then it just brings up this concept of like, what happens when you're sanctioning a technology as opposed to an individual or an entity? And I got this like Brian Armstrong quote, CEO of Coinbase. He said, sanctioning a technology as opposed to an individual or entity seems like a bad precedent to me and it should be challenged. Could have many downstream unintended consequences. So what could the downstream consequences of this be if, you know, this kind of legal practice was looked to be used again when it comes to like crypto tech? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things. There's some things that are like actually direct impacts, right? So if we actually just look at what I mentioned earlier, which is like US people using Tornado Cash, they can't. Okay, well, that's the first one. That's the closest impact. Then you get one step removed from that. And you say, what other impacts are there? Okay, well, what we also saw a lot on Twitter was complaints about people getting blocked from using interfaces. And basically, the reason that happened is because a lot of DeFi interfaces, even though the protocols are completely open source and permissionless, the interfaces are hosted in a centralized manner. And so those interfaces, the developers behind them, will essentially use blockchain analytics companies to determine whether they are in their determination, able to transact with a certain address. Well, what ended up happening is because a smart contract that has sent funds to, I've seen up to like 50% of all Ethereum addresses have somehow touched OFAC, like indirectly through wallet hops, that basically you had a ton of people getting blocked from transacting on different DeFi platforms as a result of that. That's like a second impact. I think the most important one that Brian was referring to is the precedent that this sets from like a technological perspective, which is, I said earlier, like no lawyer would have thought that you would have a smart contract address put on the SDN list. And the reason for that is because you're basically like limiting free speech in that instance, right? So code is speech. We know that. There are limitations on that for what it's worth. Like people talk about the code is speech thing as if it's like a, a ultimate truth. It's not. Um, there is code that if it is written in certain ways, for example, if you write code that is intended to cause AI to go kill people, that code is not going to be protected speech, <laughs> like very clearly. But most code is protected speech, especially code that is neutral in its activity in the way that Tornado Cash was. And so the problem with this now is that if you're a developer, you're sitting there saying, what is it that I can develop and just write code for and actually get in legal trouble for? Whereas before you would have asked yourself, okay, if I write this code, I'm probably going to be fine. What I need to be careful about is what activity I do around that. Am I hosting certain things? Am I marketing it in an incorrect way? And so setting a precedent where essentially you are going to go ahead and prevent American people from using open source code is a very bad precedent. And honestly, if we do nothing about it, it essentially like opens the door for other regulatory agencies to essentially try to go after code itself rather than actually the activity of people around that code. Now, I really, really like that explanation and, and talking through how code is viewed from a speech perspective. And you even, when we started talking about Tornado Cash in the beginning, had talked about how when it comes to intent, they've done a lot of things to, it seems like, show that Tornado Cash isn't built to be intended to use for those nefarious reasons. I've got like a, a Twitter thread pulled up listing some reasons why Tornado Cash might be used for the average person. Maybe you want to, you've been doxxed and you're being harassed online, so you want to send funds anonymously. You want to 
anonymously gift to a cause. You're being paid in crypto and don't want your employer knowing your financial details. So, you know, hiding personal wallet addresses and stuff like that. So it seems like there's a lot of real use cases for Tornado Cash. And I guess we'll be we'll be following this, right? This it seems like there's definitely gonna be downstream action probably being taken to maybe reverse this or just make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been a lot of infighting in the community over this. And what I really hope, and I know there's some who are focused on doing this, there's going to be like the community coming together to really actually fight this against those who who we need to fight. And there's certain organizations, uh, Coin Center, DeFi Education Fund, Blockchain Association, that are like policy and advocacy orgs. They're already coming together to make plans on like what they can do. And I just hope, honestly, the rest of the community can do it. Because like what we've seen from a like regulatory perspective is that when the community comes together and acts as one, we're like extremely powerful in the space. The most evident has been like around the infrastructure bill a couple years ago, a year ago now, where you basically had, you know, tens of thousands of letters from the crypto community written to policymakers around this bill and phone calls being made. Point is that we have like amazing community and that we just need to like act together as one against those who are actually bad actions. Awesome. Definitely be following that. Well, let's let's transition a little bit and maybe talk about law and legal as it pertains to entrepreneurs, NFT projects and companies building right now. So I'd say like high level before we dive into the sufficient decentralization is what are your biggest concerns or insights that you feel like you're passing on to projects and founders in the NFT space? For me, basically, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm curious, what are some things that keep being recurring themes when you're talking to builders in a space in terms of what they should be thinking through from the legal perspective? I mean, I think there's like a couple parts that we can get into. The first is like DAOs in general. And that's what most of this paper is focused on. I think what ended up happening is that we go back a couple years and, and we look at DeFi. And basically what you had is these big DAOs popping up, right? Essentially multi-sigs around DeFi protocols. And when you take a look at those, essentially what you see is that you had like pretty big projects, Compound, Uniswap doing those. These are established projects with huge communities doing it. But then you start fast forwarding in time. And what you see is that DeFi protocols, but not just DeFi protocols now, other communities coming together around artists, creators, things of that nature and creating DAOs. And you also see this around DeFi protocols. And what you end up seeing is these DAOs that have like a very different nature from what you had from something like Compound and Uniswap, right? These are DAOs that are actually a lot smaller, a lot more controlled, and frankly, have a lot more legal risk that come with them than what you might see with a much bigger community. And that's basically what that kind of paper ends up being being focused on. But I think like the thing that I think of most in like the NFT space honestly has to do with like fractional ownership of of NFTs more than anything else. This isn't entirely true, but pretty close that if you're going to create a fractional interest in an NFT, you can like almost be certain that that's creating a security. There's like very rare instances where that's not going to be the case. And we can talk through like why, why that's the case, but that's probably like one of the biggest issues that I see coming up. I think the other one is like, and this happens with with crypto all the time, is you start off with a certain use case in a certain way, it gains attention, and then it changes. And NFTs is like a good example of this, right? Like NFTs, when you first started like hearing about NFTs, and frankly, right before people even started hearing the way they were being used, there was always an investment component to it, which is totally fine. But they weren't being used in that way, like primarily. There was more to it. There's like a strong community aspect to NFTs. And then basically what you see is that there's hype around it. And the focus starts being really financial more than anything else. And I think that when you're basically selling an NFT with a pure focus on the financial aspect of it, especially where you have a roadmap behind it, by like a central party that is issuing these NFTs in the first place, that's when you're going to run into probably like the biggest legal risks. I feel like the fractionalization around NFTs got a lot of hype. I feel like maybe six months to a year ago when CryptoPunks started booming, uh, some NBA top shots were selling for a lot of money. It was kind of the first time people started saying, 
you know, these are scarce. There's a limited amount of these. And the most respected NFTs are going to start being fractionalized. And we started seeing some platforms where you could buy like a percentage of CryptoPunk. I feel like the fractionalizations died off a little bit, at least from my perspective online. Maybe that's because there's a lot of legal implications still being figured out, the tech side still being figured out. But you mentioned anytime you're fractionalizing an NFT, like it's basically 100% of security. Can we just stop right there and go over like what is a security and why does that matter so much? Because I keep seeing this pop up and I, I'm trying to wrap my head around like why does it matter that it's a security so much for me as an investor or collector? Yeah, it's a really good question. So back up to when the SEC created something referred to as the Securities Act of 1933. Go way back in time. And essentially what that says is that if you want to sell a security, then you need to register that security or you need to rely on an exemption. So the question is, what is a security? And the security is a laundry list of terms. It includes stocks, it includes bonds, it includes evidence of indebtedness. And then it has this term that is an investment contract. And this is what you hear about most in the space. So the question is, what is an investment contract? And the answer is that an investment contract is going to exist any time that there is a transaction, contract, or scheme involving an investment of money in what is referred to as a common enterprise, where there's an expectation of profit based on the efforts of others. If those four things exist, investment of money, common enterprise, expectation of profit, efforts of others, then you are going to have an investment contract and you're going to have a security. And therefore, you need to register that security or rely on exemption. The problem is that registering the, the security is extremely expensive. It's basically an IPO. That's what it is. It's when a company goes public. And uh, there are assets that have been sold through IPOs, not just you know, equity interests in, in securities. The problem, again, is that this is super time-consuming and super expensive. So what people do is they try to rely on these exemptions. And the SEC has stated certain times where you can sell securities without registering them. A lot of times, this actually involves selling them to accredited investors. These are individuals that have a high net worth or a high enough salary to be allowed to purchase this. There are other times where you have like a hybrid it's like still considered an exemption, but it's like a little bit of a registration and a little bit of an exemption referred to as Reg A+. And this is where you've actually seen the biggest growth in assets actually being sold. So there's a company called Rally Road. They basically sell, I think it's cars or groups of cars, I think individuals sometimes together through this Reg A+, process, and that allows them to sell it to the public. Point is that the second you are a security, and you sell it in that way, now you have a very limited ability to resell it. Because the only way that you can resell these things on any kind of an exchange is if this exchange is registered, like the NASDAQ or NYSE. Those are where you need to sell these types of assets. Problem with that is that is not where we want to be selling assets. <laughs> Coinbase is not registered. FTX is not registered. That's really the issue. OpenSea looks rare, like any of these decentralized applications. Like with crypto, there can be a new decentralized marketplace popping up every week. And there's probably very little expectation that all those are going to get registered following these guidelines, especially because some of them might be created by people outside of even the U.S., yeah. Well, and you see like the difference, right, in in just the speed of these popping up, right? Whether you're talking about like OpenSea or, or Magic Eden, right? You're basically going to see a, you know, NFT collection get listed there in essentially like seconds or minutes <laughs> relative to Coinbase, which will take longer, relative to the New York Stock Exchange, which will take a year. The speed at which you can move when you're not dealing with the security is much quicker than when you are dealing with the security. So would you say that the biggest barrier to being compliant is simply registering and the cost and the legal process associated with that? Or is it something else? I mean, that should be the biggest barrier, but it's not. As in, it is a huge barrier and it does exist. But the biggest barrier, honestly, is the SEC, which I say that because 
even if you go ahead and register, which right now, if you're dealing with any kind of crypto or NFT, the SEC is going to take like years to allow you to register this. And so if you are able to, though, then the problem is, where are you going to trade it? Why? Because the SEC has refused to actually allow any registration for the trading of crypto. So you've got companies that have bought other companies. Coinbase has bought a broker dealer for the purpose of being able to trade crypto that is considered securities. And the SEC will not allow them to do it. So the biggest blocker effectively is the SEC just not allowing crypto to be traded on the secondary market if it's a security. I got too many questions to reasonably fit into one podcast. So I'm like trying to figure out which one I want to ask next. I'm just thinking about how technology is just innovating faster and faster. And I feel like with crypto specifically, it's hit this point where it's outpacing the policy side so fast that it's creating just a massive, it's almost like a water is pushing up against the dam and it can't hold it back anymore. And soon it's going to break. Like, what do you think happens to address this? Because it looks like crypto's here to stay. People are innovating at a rapid clip. And I think people are starting to get concerned about, you know, what are, what are we buying? Are my assets safe? Am I putting money into something that's going to get regulated or maybe banned for some reason? So I'm curious, what, what's the solution to this? And is it your sufficient decentralization argument you're making? So I think your point is, is really good around the issue that we're facing right now, which is like what I call, I, I basically say we DDoS the SEC. Basically, there's just been way too much activity going on in crypto for the SEC to even keep up with it. And so the question then is, can any regulator actually keep up with it? Now, obviously, like a bear market actually helps a regulator get caught up. But the truth is, like this bear market is not like a 2018-19 bear market. This is like a very active bear market where there is still a lot going on. The SEC actually like successfully slowed down the crypto market in 2008. Basically what ended up happening is that it sent tons of subpoenas out to companies and it basically made it very evident like we are coming after you. And the, the industry basically freaked out and private sales basically stopped. The thing is like the SEC has tried to do it this time. How has it tried? It's basically tried to go after the bottlenecks, stable coins, lending, exchanges, decentralized exchanges, right? Like Uniswap being able to list as many, have as many pools as it has is like the biggest headache possible for the SEC. But it still failed to do it because this time it's dealing with decentralized software that nobody can stop and therefore it can't do anything about it. So we're basically at a point where if we actually want an outcome, especially because we've got this like massive like headbutting between the industry and like the key regulator being the SEC, the only thing we can really do is rely on policymakers. And this is why you see like a lot of advocacy going on in the crypto space. So this is like, if you go look at like many companies, even, even like decentralized exchanges, the companies that develop them, right? Go look at Uniswap. They have like a head of policy over there, right? Go look at most other, honestly, like big crypto companies. They have a policy position over there. And if they don't, they actually have somebody doing the policy work. Why? It's because the only real solution is to get policymakers, i.e. Congress, to actually pass laws that are going to make this manageable, right? And it's going to be necessary because honestly, the SEC can't keep up with it. And we do have certain regulations that are necessary. Like we need consumer protection. We should not have people getting ripped off all over the place because of like inaccuracies on interfaces or assets being frozen because they were stolen, but without any notice of that at the time of the purchase. There's a bunch of these things that are going to need to be addressed because honestly, they're just important to address. And they, they can be addressed without like harming the permissionless nature of the technology. But it's just not going to come from the regulators. It's going to come from the policymakers. You mentioned consumer protection, and it kind of made me think of what we're seeing in Canada just this past week with Ontario imposing some crypto sanctions on how much crypto you can buy per year. The policy they put out was 30K for the average investor. But if you're an accredited investor, I think you have an un unlimited amount you can buy. And in their reasoning behind this, it specifically states it's to protect consumers from like risky investments. 
And I don't know, I'm someone who's not an accredited investor. None of my friends are accredited investors. And a draw to me to the whole Web3 NFT and crypto ecosystem is this open financial world where we can all participate. It's frustrating sometimes to see some of these regulations block the average investor from opportunities in, in the name of protection. So that was one thought that came in my mind. And, you know, as we also talk about this policy thing, another thing that I think through is you're probably familiar with Balaji, the former Coinbase CTO, and he talks a lot about like crypto nation states. And what I kind of hear from you talking is a battle between like crypto and formal government and the, their headbutting, right? It almost feels like the only reasonable way for this to end up is just crypto to, I mean, there'll be regulation, but it kind of feels like we're pushing for less and less regulation ultimately around crypto because we're going to realize it, it almost can't be regulated. And I wonder if just we're, we're going to get to this state where like crypto operates in this government free zone almost. I don't know that that might be too idealistic, but uh, it's kind of what I hear when I hear you talking about these clashes between government and, you know, open source contracts. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I love Balaji's view on this, but I mean, in my view is there needs to be an intermediate state. I don't know Balaji personally, but I think if you were to go to him and say, how long is this going to take to play out, right? The answer is going to be like 10 years until you get a true like nation state, if not longer than that. And so you need this intermediate step, right? Because we can't go another 10 years doing what we're doing right now. But the, honestly, the problem is what you described in Canada is like the epitome of the issue here is like we have these laws that are intended to protect people. And I honestly, I truly believe I'm not a like, I don't like to be grandiose. I don't believe that like they're trying to protect incumbents. I honestly think they think that's a good way to protect consumers. But like, it is extremely harmful. If you look at like the value that has been created over the last 10 years, it has been like private companies, and it has been crypto. <laughs> and basically, you can't buy those things in a regulated world. If you are not an accredited investor, the only thing that has allowed people in crypto to actually gain any kind of true like worth has been the fact that it hasn't been highly regulated. But then when you see Canada and you see the laws that it puts in place, you actually see how ridiculous this is. That 30K limit on crypto in Canada only applies to four different cryptocurrencies. I think it's BTC, ETH, LTC, and BCH. Bitcoin Cash. Yes. They're protecting people by letting them buy Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash. They're living back in like 2018 or 19 or whatever it is when Bitcoin Cash was created. The point is that like the regulators really do not, in my opinion, like know what they are doing in many countries. I actually think the SEC, they're like pretty good about it. And really policymakers need to get like educated and educated big time. Like right now, when I think of like education in this country that is being pushed on crypto, honestly, it's a lot of lawyers and policymakers that are like doing it. We actually like need way more communities to be going and talking to policymakers and explaining crypto to them and explaining why it actually matters. They need to explain all of these different parts to it so that they can actually pass laws that make sense. Because like when you look at this Canadian law, it literally does not make sense. Clearly there was insufficient advocacy and education because otherwise they would have never made the decision that they made. A hundred percent. Yeah, really appreciate that breakdown, Mark. So I've talked about it a couple of times. I mentioned it. I really want to just touch on your sufficient decentralization article. It was in-depth. I read the whole thing. I liked it. And I just want you to hit us with what is sufficient decentralization? Because I think it kind of gets to what we've been talking about for the last you know, 20 minutes around securities, the problem they pose, the risks. And ultimately, I think your sufficient decentralization argument is how projects can classify themselves as not a security and avoid some of these challenges, right? So in just a high level, what is it? And then what are some of the ways that projects can address to not become a security? Yeah. So the whole purpose of the article was to really focus, as I mentioned earlier, on, on DAOs and how it is that you know token holders in those DAOs won't be holding tokens that are considered securities or to be like part of securities because they're investment contracts. And the concept of sufficient decentralization actually comes from an SEC staffer 
So this was the former director of uh, a division called Corporate Finance, Bill Hinman. He gave a speech that is very well known back in, I believe it was 2018, where basically what he said is that Ether may have been sold when it was initially sold as a security. More specifically, he said, leaving aside the initial sale of Ether, transactions in Ether right now are not transactions in securities. And his explanation for that was because if you look at the current state of the Ethereum network and of Ether and of the participants in the network, you no longer have this others from the Howey test to look at for whose expectations of profits you might expect to have. So like if you look at when Ether was initially sold, you had the Ethereum Foundation and you had Vitalik there and Ether was sold and it's reasonable that people might have thought I'm going to make a lot of money on Ether because Vitalik is a genius and he's got this roadmap for Ethereum that is really impressive and they're going to attract a lot of devs here and then a lot of users and we're going to make a lot of money. Okay, reasonable. And that's basically what Bill Hinman said. But then what he also said is now fast forward to where Ethereum was then and where it is now. And you look at that and you see tens, if not hundreds of thousands of developers all driving billions of dollars of value through Ethereum. They are hosting podcasts. They are putting out advertising all for things that are growing the Ethereum ecosystem. And when you see that, what you start looking at and you say, okay, the Howey test for whether there's an investment contract focuses on at the very end of it, is there an expectation of profit based on the efforts of others? I personally do not expect to profit from my Ether based off of what the Ethereum Foundation does. Like sure, like ETH2 is going to be important. It's going to impact the value of Ether. But honestly, if all of the dApps on Ethereum go away, Ether's not worth anything. It doesn't matter, ETH 2.0 or not, they're not worth anything. So the value is actually being created for it by others. And that is the point of sufficient decentralization. It's when you reach the point where you have so much else going around, whether it's development activity, marketing activity, business development activity, going on around a protocol, that the value is coming from what a lot of people are doing with no one identifiable group to drive the value that you're expecting from the crypto. Makes a lot of sense and I appreciate that explanation. Very interesting to think about how that applies to different NFT projects, different tokens, and ultimately how that could lead to regulation impacting them down the road. So if you're listening right now and you found any of that like interesting and you wanna learn more, definitely recommend reading through Mark's article. We'll be sure to like link it in our descriptions and whatnot so you can you can find that. Awesome, and then I just wanna list out the couple of ways that you you mentioned thinking through reducing risk to Web3 participants was around protocol development, business development, growth and marketing, intellectual property and governance decisions. So we don't have time to dive into all those today, but I, I thought that was a, a really cool breakdown. And even just thinking about how like Unstoppable is approaching it with, you know, making some code open source, making things interoperable, how you think about using grants. It definitely gives like founders and entrepreneurs a good framework for how to think through, all right, what areas of the business do we think about decentralizing? And there's this big like, debate in crypto around like, oh, are you centralized? Are you decentralized? But I think what you also mentioned is like that decentralization can happen over time and it can happen to different parts of your business through that time frame as well. Just becoming a, a fully decentralized DAO, like you you mentioned, you sacrifice efficiency for, you know, innovation in a lot of in a lot of standpoints and or just um, decision making. And so speed and efficiency, right? That's these trade-offs you're making. It's tough to grow something maybe fully decentralized off the bat. So thinking through how you can apply it to different parts of your business is I think a useful exercise. Josh, you summarized that better than I could have. I seriously have, I got like five pages of notes in front of me. I, uh, if it was printed out, I would have annotated the whole thing. So I found it really interesting. I'm glad you thought I summarized it. That was my biggest fear. I was gonna mischaracterize it because we don't have enough time to dive into that today, but maybe on a part two. Let's do our web one, two, three, and I'm gonna try something I haven't done on the Unstoppable podcast before. We're gonna use a transition sound. 
That was fun. All right, let's do web one, two, three. I got my first question for you. Who's an influential web three creator, entrepreneur, or collector that's inspired or educated you in your NFT and web three journey? Yeah. Can I mean two? Because the first one is Vitalik. It's such a cop out, but I'm going to name him anyway, because bottom line is like, we just wouldn't be here without him. And if you just look at the way that he has like been able to bring a community together, build a technology that is amazing, and then basically let it go. Yes, he's influential, but ultimately, like he's actually done a very good job of letting Ethereum grow in the way that it can grow on its own. So that's the first one. The second one that I'll point to might seem like random to some, but it's very meaningful to me, is I just left DYDX where I was the chief legal officer. And the founder over there is Antonio Giuliano, who used to be a former Coinbase employee. But basically what he did is that he pushed me and he pushes the company and I think he pushes the space to think in a way that is different from many others in Web3. He basically pushes you to think, how can we actually operate efficiently in Web3? He's actually one of the ones who like pushed me to get a paper like the one that I wrote out there. Because the bottom line is what we've seen is a lot in Web3 is like companies drowning, protocols that don't go anywhere. And basically what he's focused on is how do we actually maintain decentralization, but actually push something that can be used by a broad number of people. And I think it's like takes like a lot of focus to be able to do that. And he's done that incredibly well. Awesome. Yeah, we, we got a lot of great people coming from DYDX, you know, even had a, another unstoppable podcast guest, uh, Josh and Yin, co-founder of Magic Eden. I think he I think I remember him saying he was employee number like two or three at DYDX. So good recommendations there for influential people. Question two, what's your favorite NFT? I would say that my favorite NFT is punks. And that is a cop out again. Why is it punks? I think because punks is the example that I can give everyone as to why NFTs have value. So a lot of people come to me and say, why NFTs? These make no sense. They're, you can create them so easily and so on. And I basically go and look, there's, there's a lot of uses for NFTs, obviously. I'm focused on like the art use here. And basically what I say is, look, we've got a um, ton of art that exists in the real world that is completely useless. We have tons of NFTs that are completely useless out there. But what you end up having is you have some NFTs that are going to be worth something real. And the part that I love about it is that there's a story behind it. I think the fact that punks are as ugly as they are is like amazing and awesome. I absolutely love that. I mean, apes are are pretty darn ugly too, um, <laughs> but but punks are like are, are really ugly. And what I love about it is that it's actually like the community story behind it that I actually think is the most useful and interesting part of NFTs. Honestly, they bring together communities in a way that like honestly none of the other crypto space really does like you get like tribalism and stuff like that but the excitement that you get around communities in around like nfts is like totally different and i think like punk is like a perfect example of that because it's basically this horrible ugly art but really you have this like amazing community behind it i gotta know do you have one or maybe wanting one in your future i would love to have a punk but you know i i have to like admit back Oh man, it was the Crypto Kitty days. I would like look at this and be like, this is so dumb. And honestly, I looked at punks and I thought this was so dumb. And it took me some time to really like get inspired to be like, okay, to, to me still NFTs is about the community. It's still what I love about NFTs now, but it took me like a long time to actually realize how awesome it is. I mean, side note, exact same thing for Bitcoin. My friend introduced me to Bitcoin in 2013 and he bought $3,000 of Bitcoin. And I told him, dude, what are you doing? You're insane. This, this is a total scam. And somehow he listened to me and he sold it, which I feel very bad about. He's still my friend, surprisingly. So clearly I'm like slow to things. And same thing with NFTs. I looked at it and I'm like, this is not interesting. And it kind of took me a little while to like realize. And then it hit me and I'm like, okay, this is actually pretty awesome. I mean, look, I think any time that you're completely having to reframe the way you're thinking about things, the punks are and Bitcoin, these are some of the first times you're thinking about digital assets, digital currencies, digital art, and ownership of digital assets too. So I wouldn't call you slow. I think you're still way ahead of the curve, but appreciate you sharing you know, that perspective. 
Third and final question. In five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that people just aren't talking about yet? I don't know enough about what people are talking about because I feel like the conversations right now around the metaverse are like very like web two driven. I think probably like one of the most interesting things is that I think that the metaverse is going to look completely different from what anyone is expecting, right? So the, the metaverse is like right now, they basically like everything that is being built around it looks like the real world. It's like honestly not super innovative to be to be honest. I think it needs to be like completely reworked and I think that is what's going to happen. I think that when we fast forward 5 years, we are going to be in a metaverse that does not look like our world whatsoever and actually makes us think about the world in a completely different way. And I have no idea how many people think about the metaverse in the same way as I do. But to me, like we're going to walk in there and we're going to say, this was so obvious, but I never thought about it. And it's not going to look like our world at all. Well, thanks for sharing all that and your take on the metaverse. So I just want to say thank you for coming on the Unstoppable podcast. I think the listeners are really going to find this episode insightful and just learning a lot about securities, legal challenges. It's a it's a good conversation and one that's going to be ever evolving. So can you let us know where can we find you on Twitter, online, and, and keep following the work that you're doing? Yeah. So first, thanks for having me, Josh. It's been tons of fun. You can find me on Twitter at, at Boyron Attorney. So just last name, attorney. Awesome. And yeah, that will be linked in our podcast episodes too for it to be easy to find. So that's it for this week's episode of the Unstoppable Podcast, coming at you every single Tuesday. Experts in crypto, NFTs, whether you're a collector, investor, or entrepreneur, we're talking with them. Please drop a like and subscribe on the channel. Subscribe to the podcast. It means a lot and helps us grow. With that, I'll see you in the metaverse. I'll see you on Twitter. See you next week. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.